closer for considering how far apart we are. Yeah, do you know what's really crazy to think about? It? How far we've come technologically that the the way, you know, the fact that we're speaking on opposite ends of the planet and the delays really aren't that pronounced. Like, even when I no. FaceTime with my family, who's in the eastern seaboard and the western seaboard of the United States, it's not that long. It's really crazy how we can do this in 2019. I think it's pretty special. I know. Special. It's, it is pretty special, especially considering we haven't had that many issues, because normally when you record with Australia, there's always I, issues. I, 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 but I, 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 <laughs> but I, well, now that we're off to this very... <laughs> thrilling start very great start. this is the trove uh, it is the bi-weekly i guess the off week of my little podcast called relic where we talk about lost treasure and you listen to my voice mm-hmm. for 45 minutes until you go insane um it's it's just kind of a round table where we just talk about what's going on in the world of archaeology that week with an emphasis on the unusual uh with me tonight is courtney from cult of domesticity podcast hello yes hi <laughs> And yeah, it is, by the time this comes out, I imagine it will be very close to Halloween, if either really close before or after the fact. So that'll be interesting. And I think I've really exhausted all of my spooky treasure options. So I don't know what I'm going to do next year, if Relic is Uh, still going on. That's, yeah, Halloween is like history and true crime podcasters, I think, Christmas. Because everyone... (laughs) Does crossovers. Everyone's like, it's spooky. You can get the historical spooky. You can get the, like, murder spooky. Like, it's perfect. And then every other holiday goes past and we're like, eh. Yeah. Well, Christmas I try to do, too, because I like to balance the dark and the light. And I don't want to be, like, exclusively grim because true crime is so ubiquitous right now on podcast land that I try to... Well, I mean, I'm doing a lot of true crime this season that's related to, like, theft and uh, forgery and stuff like that. But, but yeah, I, I try to make it not about just people being killed, which there is some of that in some episodes, because yeah. that's the nature of, you know, lost treasure. Some people will kill each other over it. Um, what are you doing for Halloween? I actually think... I'm working, <laughs> probably. I don't know. I think, though, I'm going to be Maleficent because I didn't get to wear my awesome Gay ass. costume last year. I got horns when I was living in Washington, and they they were amazing. But I was driving cross-country last year. With the horns? I couldn't wear them while driving because I couldn't okay. turn my head in my car. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I was, yeah, I think I was in, I was in Iowa last year on Halloween. I drove through Iowa. That's what I did. Um, it is pretty gothic. Yeah, it was. And so it was pretty uneventful because what can you do when it's like day six of driving cross country? You're just like, I'm so tired. I'm so done with this. Yeah, well, it'll be fun to do something this year. Um as i've said before halloween isn't a as huge of a deal in australia as it is in the states it is kind of uh but i'm hoping to go to one or two parties and my costume this year is kind of a masculine well she's pretty masculine anyway in the show but um a masculine interpretation of uh jasper from steven universe i i've seen that and i can't think of what she looks like 
she's a, a my friend zelda described her as a, a buff cheeto she's just orange and huge with a giant wig i'm not i don't think i'm gonna do the giant wig part i'm gonna get like just a shake and go from the party oh, okay. store but uh but i have the body paint so i think i think it'll be cool but um as as my partner reminded me he's like hmm you're american and you're painting yourself orange Toe that line carefully, my friend. <laughs> that is so true. Okay, wait. I pulled it up. Let me see. You said orange. Yeah, Jasper. She's oh, okay. a villain. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Body paint definitely is going to have to happen for that. <laughs> um. Anyways, what kind of weird stuff are we talking about this week? So I have an article from Gizmodo discussing how the great library at alexandria was destroyed by budget cuts not fire (laughs) (laughs) and i was like i saw that title and i was just like of course it was yes tell me more as i'm in humanities tell me about budget cuts (laughs) so for over decades the library had been collecting scrolls um pretty much any which i found this out in a, a hellenistic history class Basically, how they got all their scrolls was anytime a ship came into port, you had to turn over all your scrolls, and they would copy them and give you back the copies and keep the originals, which I was like, petty. I Yeah, I think there was one of... We did an episode uh, closer to the start of Relic that I did, I think, with uh, the Frankenpod in mm-hmm. Australia. Here, actually. Uh, I, wow, I should probably hit them up or something that I live here. Uh, but we talked about how they used to do that at the library. It's so sketchy, but yeah. so clever. So at one point, there was over 100 scholars living there full time, supported by state stipends that allowed them to maintain, translate, and copy scrolls as well as conduct research. And they actually opened another branch of the library um, at the Temple of Serapis. And it was like the daughter library. So there was two locations. And this was supported for years pretty much by the state. And we do hear of Julius Caesar burning down the library and attack on the city and, and on Cleopatra in 40 CE. But there's really no evidence that the library or its daughter branch were wrecked. Really, the, the reference to the 40,000 scrolls in literature is kind of supposed to be like the ones that Caesar was exporting from the city when he attacked. So he was taking some back to Rome. He's like, you know what? I like these books. Let me take them. So he really, really didn't burn it down. He just sacked it and looted it. Cause yeah. I just didn't like, cause yeah, that for what I knew of Caesar, that just didn't seem like he seemed more like he would be like, I need, I'm going to steal this rather than I'm going to destroy this knowledge. Yeah, it's definitely more of a Roman way, like, hey, we like your what you're doing. Let's take your knowledge back. There was other reports of burnings and sackings as well. Um, it was The library was supposedly destroyed by Emperor Aurelian against a battle of Queen Zenobiba in 272 CE, but it's very likely it like, left scars on the area where the city was housed, but there was no evidence that the structure was lost. There was also religious riots in 391, three and 415 that damaged the library, but they rebuilt it and they restored the collection. So the state is still putting money into this library. It's like their crown jewel. 
Um, it'd kind of be like not putting money into the Smithsonian. Right. Like, you should just do it. It's still like, so throughout all this, it's still the center. Uh, but as a library historian, Heather Phillips noted in an essay on the Library of Alexandria, the destruction was gradual and due with more government spending cuts than with the Great Fire, as she wrote, quote, though it seems fitting that the destruction of so mythic an institution as the Library of Alexandria must have been required for some cataclysmic event. In reality, the fortunes of the Great Library waxed and waned with that of Alexandria itself. Much of its downfall was gradual, often bureaucratic, and by comparison, our cultural magazine cultural imaginings somewhat petty end quote so like really it's just whoever's in power are they gonna fund it are they not gonna fund it do we like have any idea where like the site of the library is i think we do but i feel like it might be in one of the sections of alexandria that's currently underwater because yeah if i remember correctly parts of alexandria like in seasons like just get so flooded that it's hard to maintain so, really, the key that made the museum and its branch great were its scholars. We have, like, emperors abolishing their stipends, forbidding foreign scholars to come to the library. He essentially shuts it down. And, you know, without people to care for the scrolls, study them, and share them, what is a library? The last references to the library's contents comes from about... 639 CE when Arab troops under the rule of Caliphate Omar conquered Alexandria. So Luciano Cafora has written one of the most complete histories of the library based on most primary source materials on it and he pretty much took his documentation from people who knew or worked in the library. He called I believe this is his book called In the Vanished Library. He describes how the library has been reduced by its ultimate destruction. The Sarebum had been destroyed in the pagan attack on pagan temples in 391. And the last famous figure associated with the museum had been Theon, the father of the celebrated Heptea, who studied geometry and musicology and um, who was convinced by Christians were convinced she was a heretic and had been murdered. The last remnants of the, Library of Alexandria had either been cast out, buried in the sand, or been replaced by substantial parchment and thick-bound codices. The collection, basically, due to copying and, like, changing tastes, got thrown out. So, yeah. Oh, shit. And even though it seemed like the, cal- uh, the caliphate had burned the library, really, like, the building was burned, but it seems like the books were distributed throughout the city and like so some people could have been like keeping the books but we just don't know like so they're out in circulation somewhere they the just ended up elsewhere and we just so, yeah interesting so the great fire of alexandria happened but it was just like the, the library had survived through many iterations it's just when you don't fund these sources where do the books go and that's why we should fund the arts and the education. PSA. Yeah. PSA. Um, that's that's cool and sad. Um, mm. This is more cool than sad. Uh, this seems kind of more of like a triumph. So these two researchers in uh, the city of York, uh, Anita Redini was, is one, and the other is Mark Clark. They were... 
So one of them was a bacteria researcher, so both ostensibly archaeologists, and they were trying to see um, what could be discovered in uh, tartar left on teeth from uh, des- mm. not desecrated, disinterred graves. So they found this woman who lived, uh, the skeleton of a woman who lived some somewhere between 997 to 1162, mm-hmm. I'm going to assume CE, common era. And they're looking at her teeth, trying to like figure out what her diet was. And they kept seeing uh, under the microscope really just bright, un- almost unnatural blue. And they're like, what the heck is this? And so an- they analyzed the compound or the mineral and they discovered it was lapis lazuli. And they realized that it was tied back to um, a type of pigment called ultramarine that was used in medieval manuscripts. Now, pigments, Mm -hmm. which are used to make color for paint, they're essentially color, are just taken from all natural sources. Some of them work more common than others. But ultramarine is still to this day one of the, if not the most expensive pigments, because it only comes from the color of lapis lazuli, because blue isn't that common in nature. And to actually, no, that's crazy. Yeah, and you, you pigments are weird. Like I've got a friend, um, William, who's in textiles, and they had mentioned that the color pink comes from avocado skin. Which I don't know how that works, but there's something in the process. So anyways, ultramarine was so rare of a pigment and so expensive that it was only really used in uh, illuminated manuscripts to illustrate the robes of the Virgin Mary. They realized that this woman had to have been doing manuscripts. But a lot of historians thought that was ridiculous because of something that you might have heard of called sexism. Um, where they're like, no, women couldn't have done manuscripts at all. But it turns out that some women have. And they were able to actually trace a manuscript to the same region that this uh, skeleton was discovered, um, a monastery 40 miles from Dahlheim, Germany. And they believe that she was illustrating these these manuscripts. And the reason why there were pigments in her teeth is either because they just kind of entered the mm-hmm. pigments entered there naturally through the air when she was preparing the, the paint or the ink, or she, when you, when you're doing line work in manuscripts, you have to like, to make the the point fine, you have to actually put it into your mouth to make like the tip of the brush fine. And they think that she just like the pigments got into her teeth that way. That's how the radium girls who painted the radium watches got radium poisoning. My favorite murder had an episode on that recently, but uh, it it was interesting. Is that this this article, which is written in the Atlantic, kind of is almost this fight against sexism to basically legitimize this woman who, as a manuscript author, who was probably a nun. And she would have had to have been really good at her job because this pigment was so rare. Yeah, I think that I remember when that came out and in like all the people I'm friends with Facebook who are in history were like, oh, my God, look at how crazy this is and having conversations about it. And then I think I mentioned last episode, the Medievalist podcast has actually interviews the two researchers. Oh, really? So they talk about like. That's so cool. Yeah, she research. She they interview them. And, like, talks about how this project actually came together because it was just, like, the archaeologist was, like, they kept seeing it and they couldn't figure out, like, exactly what it was. So they, like, and how they did the testing and, like, what they're going to do and, like, really how 
archaeologists are using human teeth, like, because we don't realize how much our teeth store. I don't like which that. Which is kind of creepy. It's basically because of what you're eating, you can get, you get different deposits and stuff in your teeth um, that take longer to dissipate. It's, I've actually, they've been doing it for like probably a decade now, I think, where it's like going really in depth and you don't need as much as like a bone, like you don't need as much DNA and stuff. But yeah, I think that's, that's just fascinating. And I kind of love that they were like, hey, women... Yeah, they weren't just like they people probably like okay they're doing manuscripts but they're not handling these expensive pigments, and they're like no women were doing like full just like the men like illuminated manuscript products. Sisters are doing it for themselves. Yes. So what's your next one? Okay. Next thing. My next story is a basically a DNA test on turns out I'm a hundred percent a Viking. Is it, Actually, it turns out I'm not a man. That's what it was. So I didn't think you were. You never <laughs> used no, <laughs> never. <laughs> always she, her. So I just assumed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this. Uh, they had discovered a Viking tomb, and they always assumed that it was a man's tomb. They discovered a la- she had been buried mid 10th century, along with deadly weapons, two horses. And so, originally, archaeologists historians thought she was a man, and they published their findings in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology. However, this is wrong. Quote, it's actually a woman somewhere over the age of 30, fairly tall to measuring around five, six inches. Mm-hmm. End quote, says archaeologist Charlotte Hedsternia Johnson of Uppsala University, who conducted a study. And she was most likely a ruler, which, yeah... That's what I love about the Vikings. They're like, are you a strong warrior? Cool. Rule us. Uh, but they had complete warrior equipment beside her. You know, sword, spear, axe, uh, armor-piercing arrows, battle knife, shields, two horses. She also had a board game on her lap, which could have been like a war planning game to for like tactics and strategy, showing that she was a powerful military leader, leader which means she probably planned, led, and took part in battles. This uh, discovery actually marks the first genetic proof that women were Viking warriors as well, according to fizz.org. And um, this is since they excavated the first Viking grave in the late 1800s. Wow. Um, They didn't excavate until the late 1800s? Yeah, that's when they first started doing it. And I'm just like, that's crazy. But yeah. It seems so recent. Um, yeah, so basically how they switched this discovery from a male Viking warrior to female is uh, ostentologist, so bone study, bone study persons, bone people. Anna Kilstrom of Stockholm University noticed that the skeleton had finer cheekbones and feminine hips. So they were like, okay, let's just do a quick DNA test. We can figure out if it's an XY or an X, uh, XX. Uh-huh. It's been a while since I took biology. And they discovered it was female. Quote, the image of a male warrior in a patriarchal society is reinforced by research traditions and contemporary preconceptions. Hence, the biological sex of the individual was taken for granted. End quote. And that's from Hurston at Johnson and other researchers in the report. So they, like, a lot of this is led by Stockholm and Uppsala universities. So they basically took this previous study and because someone looked at the bones, were like, I don't think this is a guy. 
And now we know that there were not only women Viking warriors, there were women Viking, like, warrior queens. That's awesome. So. It's it's interesting um, that I think that we also, we project a lot of traditional kind of gender and sexuality norms on the dead and in archaeology. So there is an example recently, and I, I... this kind of leads me into my last story, but they discovered a tomb. I forget where it was, but they're like, the archaeologists were like, well, this person's bone structure is male, but they were buried in female clothing. That's why, what's a complete mystery as to why that happened. And like any trans academic was just like, are you effing kidding me? <laughs> like, it just. It's just so unconscionable to think that, like, trans identities and, you know, just, like, the the concept of gender is very Western. And it's very, it's it's very binary. And so we're we're projecting that on these cultures where, when you, I mean, you look at civilizations that are, like, ancient um, and civilizations that are extant that have multiple concepts of gender and sexuality and gender identity. And so it was just like, like the, you know, the fact that people, scientists who are so educated and academic couldn't fathom the idea of a trans person living, you know, thousands of years ago is just absolutely absurd. And yeah, it's, it's, I was just gonna say, yeah, it's, um, I know a lot, like, historians are doing a lot of work to change that, like, upcoming historians or, like, not the super established ones, some ones that you would think of, like, the old white men, but <laughs> um, I read something recently that, like, gender was basically imposed on India by the British, because they had, like, so many, like, fluid genders, mm-hmm. and when the British came, they were like, what's all this here? <laughs> no. No. Only two. We got two. We got two. And no no crossing over between those two. Uh, well, yep. similarly, they – so there's there's skeletons that were um, found in Modena or Modena. I'm a terrible Italian. I can't pronounce my own people's language. But they were called the lovers of Modena because in their grave they're holding hands, um, which is very cute and very Halloween mood. And skeletons holding hands is great. And they were called the lovers of Modena. And initially they just, again, assumed, oh, it's a, it's a, a guy and a gal probably, you know, married or whatever. Uh, turns out that they're, they're both men. And some of them were like, oh, they were, they were siblings or cousins or soldiers. But like, Oh, so suddenly the lovers of Modena like have to change their name because like you can't have two gay skeletons. Like gay skeleton, by the way, is such a mood. Um, <laughs> so I know I was like, that's a great Oh my god, that's a great Halloween costume. What are you? I'm a gay skeleton. I mean not wrong. <laughs> uh and one day. In fact. <laughs> but um yeah, no, it's I don't know. Just, it's so funny how archaeology is so archaic in its school of thought. Uh, also realize this is a very Halloween-y episode. Now, if mm-hmm. everything's exclusively about, well, minus the Library of Alexandria. This is all about, like, bones yeah. and dead people. And misgendering dead people, which just oh, yeah. begs to be haunted. 
I just that. love that they were like, they're siblings. That's why I'm like, <laughs> it's like the on, dumb of Sa- we- the American original American dub of Sailor Moon where Uranus or Neptune were cousins. Yeah, this is a really also a really nerdy episode too. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, any final thoughts? Uh, stop putting your gender stereotypes on the past. Yeah, stop imposing <laughs> my- your heteronormative cisgendered binary on skeletons because that's a good that's a good way to get haunted. And like the last thing you oh, want yeah, to be is haunted by a queer ghost. Let's be real. <laughs> Just coming over and being like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> Uh, let's, let's quit while we're ahead before I offend someone. <laughs> it's okay when I say it. It's fine. Um, Courtney, where can people find you to list complaints and one star reviews for being? Oh yeah, please. Uh, <laughs> come check out the culture of domesticity. It's on all podcatchers, all social medias. Just search. It's history, true crime, sometimes unsolved true crime, sometimes unsolved histories tends to all be hopefully something you didn't know so you can learn something (laughs) the goal all right well thanks for listening to this episode of the trove see you in two weeks bye bye